Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Well, as we are finishing up, this will be our last week looking at this series on the doctrine of God's providence. And and as we're finishing this series up, just like the last couple of weeks, uh, there's not a particular text that I'm going to expound uh, for us this morning. Uh, but as we look at this kind of topical sermon, this, this theological uh, idea about providence, we're, we're going to look at a bunch of different verses uh, as we think particularly this morning about providence and suffering and Jesus. So let me pray for us and then uh, I, will, I will preach. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for all that is revealed to us in your word. We thank you, Father, that you make known your will as much as we need to know it. We thank you that you reveal yourself to be sovereign over all things. And we ask that as we think this morning about your sovereignty, your providentially ruling all things and our suffering and your son, I ask that you would strengthen all of us to hear. And Father, that you would strengthen me by your spirit to speak. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we've talked about both weeks why this series, this sermon series on providence matters. That It reminds us that that there is just God's plan A, that that his will is not thwarted. His, His providence reminds us that he actually deals with the world as it exists, as the world really is, with all of its brokenness, with all of its frustrations, with all of its pain. And it reminds us that God, in his providence, provides for redemption. And we've said each week that that dealing with this idea of God's providence, whether it was providence in sin or providence in salvation, or this week providence in suffering, if we try to abstract that out away from Jesus, then it really becomes kind of a meaningless doctrine. It's just philosophy. It's just us kind of thinking big thoughts. And so once again, we're going to tie this directly to Jesus. But in talking about God's providence and our suffering, There's a few points of care that we must attend to kind of right at the outset. First of all, there's the matter of being content with what we can know. In Deuteronomy 29 29, we read, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Paul asks in Romans 11.34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? When we journey into trying to understand the providence of God, and especially, I think, the providence of God and suffering, we have to be very careful not to exceed the boundaries of what has been revealed to us. Theology is not coming up with whatever thoughts we can about God. Theology is organizing what God has revealed about himself in his word and stopping there. And we've got to be careful that we do that. So you may come to me at some point, and and some of you have before, in the midst of some horrific suffering, or or, or in the midst of of kind of dealing with something from your own past, or, or whatever it may be, and you may ask me, why did God let this happen? Why did, why did God let this happen to me? 
And as much as I want to be able to look you in the eye and give you some fully satisfying answer, the hard reality is in most cases, I'll have to look you in the eye and say, I don't know. I just don't know. And so very often, I won't be able to say more than that. I won't be able to say more than, I'm not sure why this happened, but I know that God hasn't forgotten you, that Christ hasn't let you go. So beyond kind of being content with the limits of what we can say and know, there's some definitional things that we need to be clear about as we think about providence and suffering. Oftentimes when we're thinking about the providence of God and suffering, we're wanting to know why we are suffering. And this raises the first definitional kind of question, which is, what do we mean by why? What are we driving at when we ask, why am I suffering? We could be asking, what is God's ultimate purpose in suffering? And as we've already said, we probably can't really say that. We could be asking, what is the the temporal cause of the suffering? And and that could be any number of things, from you didn't get enough sleep last night to you did something really stupid and are paying the price. We could be asking, what is the effect or result the suffering had in my life? Like, is there something I'm supposed to get out of this? And again, this could be any number of things. But again, with this, we have to be careful of equating the, some, some effect that might come out of suffering with the ultimate purpose of God in that. For example, my friend Reed Dunn, y'all have heard me talk about him before. Uh, and in 2011, he was the pastor in Joplin, Missouri, when an EF5 multi-vertex, I don't really know what that means, but it sounds bad, multi-vertex tornado came through the town and took out, like obliterated 20% of the town and damaged 75% of the town a town about the size of Conway. And undoubtedly, I called him and asked him, and this is true, he prayed more in the aftermath of that. That was an effect of this tornado. And undoubtedly, a whole lot of Christians did. But we can't then say, oh, that was the purpose of God in bringing this tornado. That Reed and these Christians in Joplin would pray more. We just can't draw that straight line. Likewise, when, when something like Katrina hit New Orleans and, and you had some people saying, oh, this is the judgment of God. Well, we can't say that because we don't know that. And because it hit a whole lot of other stuff too. We, we just have to be careful with what we're driving at. And we have to be careful with not saying more than what we can. But I think what, what we are often really curious about when we ask this why question is, is something like this. How does God relate to my suffering? Or, or, or maybe we want to know, does he see me? Is he in control? Does he still have me in the palm of his hand? And so to answer these questions, it might be a little more specific about the types of suffering that we have in mind, which raises our second definitional question. What do we mean by suffering? In the New Testament, suffering or affliction or or trials covers a whole range of ideas from physical and mental illnesses to spiritual afflictions to poverty to physical attack. Likewise, when we ask about suffering in God's providence, we might each have something a little bit different in mind. 
You may be facing a stretch of life that is just harder than normal. You may be mourning the loss of a loved one. You may be being singled out at work or school for your faith or for something else. It could be anything. Anything. And we've all faced something. When we think of suffering and afflictions, what we're talking about is this. And this is a very broad definition. We're talking about the experience of life not working as it's supposed to work. Isn't that what causes suffering? That, that, that we know, we intuitively know how life should work. We, we intuitively know that stuff doesn't work correctly. That this can't be right. And when we get pushed up against that reality, it brings suffering. And so it can bring, be something very minor like a mosquito bite or, or, or like that little piece of whatever that pops up between your, your, your flesh and your fingernail and you pull it and it feels like you just ripped your whole fingernail off. It could be something minor like that. Or when we think of suffering, it may be something far more significant. An ongoing battle with, with, with mental illness, an ongoing battle with disease, being sinned against in some horrible way. Someone that we love might be suffering and that leads to our suffering. And for any number of reasons, one event may cause greater or lesser degrees of suffering in me or you than it does in anybody else. Something may happen to me that levels me. And the same thing happens to you and you don't notice. And vice versa. But suffering is that experience of life not working the way it is supposed to work. Suffering is what we are singing about this morning when we, when we sing to ourselves, Be still my soul. And, and when we sing that song, Is he worthy? And, and, and that call and response, Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. And so having this very broad definition of suffering is important for our purposes as we think about it this morning because we have a tendency, I think, to be really mean to ourselves and to others and act like there's some suffering that isn't real suffering. And kind of have a you-just-need-to-get-over-it mentality. Here's what that looks like. Sometimes we acknowledge, we, we, we apologize for acknowledging that things are broken or, or we apologize for our suffering by saying something like, I know this is just a first world problem, but, and then we fill in the blank. And while I understand that there are people in the world that have it far worse than others, far worse than we do, I get that. And I understand that the internet not working or something like that is a very different sort of suffering than not being able to provide food for your family or, or than, than being like under the threat of genocide or, or any of the horrible things that we can come up with. I realize that. But when we section off the lesser sufferings in life, the net effect is that we end up struggling to reconcile suffering and the providence of God because we can always find someone who is worse off. And we end up saying something really rude to ourselves and to each other, like, well, you're not having to endure X, so maybe you should see what you should be grateful for in your life. What a horrible thing to say to someone in the midst of suffering. What a horribly ungracious thing to say. 
Or when our suffering is greater than someone else's suffering, or we think it is, we can at times fall into this really ugly trap, which always, by the way, feels justified. This trap of being impatient or or unsympathetic to the person whose suffering is less than our own. We create a kind of suffering righteousness whereby we think we deserve some really special treatment because we're doing or going through some really hard thing. Here's the thing, though. Suffering doesn't stop being suffering just because someone else is suffering more. You need God's grace for whatever you're facing, and that doesn't change just because you can point to someone that is facing something worse. The doctrine of God's providence doesn't just apply to to quote-unquote real suffering. In reality, if God's providence doesn't speak to my annoying cuticle, it doesn't speak to my darkest and hardest moments either. If he can't handle the simple stuff, if he's not in control there, then the things of suffering that that we triangulate through a thousand different venues, how could we assume he was in control there? Further, we must say at the front end of this sermon that, that suffering doesn't stop being suffering just because nothing real bad happened or even because something good came out of it. Just because a bad situation gets redeemed does not change the fact that it was, in fact, a bad situation. When James instructs us to count it all joy, or or when Paul says we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, they're not saying to call a bad thing good, but to recognize that God works bad things for good. So that's what we're talking about. The experience of life not working as it's supposed to work. And we're taking this broader view when talking about this because it helps us see exactly how detailed our Father's care for us is. But there's all different kinds of suffering, isn't there? As we look at the Bible, we see kind of three main categories. We see consequential suffering, which is suffering that is the consequence of our own sin. I did something, and maybe I have to pay the penalty for it. We see common suffering, suffering that is is just a part of living in a fallen world, suffering that is common to Christians and non-Christians alike. Natural suffering like like storms and illness and death fit this, or or even the effect of sin type suffering when when it's being sinned against, or having to endure the effect of sin that wasn't directly against you. Christians and non Christians, we all face that. But then there's also Christian suffering or spiritual attack, persecution, accusations of Satan, those flaming darts that Paul warns us about. All of this discussion about these definitional issues matter because it helps us to see that suffering is not one size fits all. And therefore, we shouldn't expect a one size fits all answer beyond an affirmation of God's providential rule of all things, including our suffering. But we can say a little bit more than that. That there's some specific things we can look at. And and, and the very first thing, the very first place that we need to start is looking at suffering and Christ. 
Remember, we don't want to abstract this away from the gospel, away from Jesus. So Kim Riddlebarger says this, God's sovereignty manifests itself in him directing the affairs of men so that his incarnate son suffered and died for our sins. That's where we start with suffering. That God is directing all of the affairs of men to work the redemption of his people through his son, Jesus Christ. That's where we have to start. Why? The fact that Jesus suffered and died for our sins, as I told the kids, means that we will not. I want you to hear me very, very carefully on this. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever the people you love who are, who are in Christ are going through right now, whatever you've gone through in the past, whatever you will go through in the future, I can tell you with absolute certainty, if you are in Christ, it is not God pouring out his wrath on you for your sin. It is not. Whatever suffering you face in life, if you are in Christ, it is not, do not process it as God pouring out his wrath on you for your sin. Why can I be so certain of this? First, the wages of sin is not suffering in this life. The wages of sin is death. We ought not think so little of our sin that we would think we could pay our debt by some even grave suffering that is less than what the Bible prescribes. We need to understand that we're bigger sinners than we like to admit. But second, and more importantly, we have been freed from the greater consequences of sin. Listen to what Paul says. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, satisfier of his wrath, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Later in chapter 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 19, it is finished. Those were Jesus' words from the cross. It's finished. If you are in Christ, you stand justified before God, period. Jesus is the propitiation for you, period. That means he satisfied God's wrath for you. All of it. Every drop was drained on Jesus. You presently are reconciled to God. You are not condemned. You are set free from the law of sin and death. You are 
are forgiven. Your record of debt, Paul tells us in Colossians, with its legal demands, with what you deserve, is canceled by the blood of Christ. It's finished. If you face suffering in this life, it is not God punishing you when he's already punished Christ. So however you process your suffering, you can take that off the table. You can take that off the table. Christ bore the wrath of God for your sin. Not you. And God's not into double jeopardy. You will not bear God's wrath for your sin. Period. But when we think about Christ and suffering, we can say even more than that. Because we know that Jesus suffered in this life, even beyond his death. And he told us that if we we are in him... If we're united to him by faith, if we're his people, that we will suffer also. John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is what we're told to expect as Christians. Notice that Jesus didn't say, the world hates you and so it's going to be real hard and that's God's punishment. No. It hated me. You're attached to me. It's going to hate you too. And in this way, we share in Christ's suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, we read these words, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. In Colossians 1.24, Paul tells us that, that, he's, that he rejoices in his sufferings for the sake of the Colossians because in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. What does that mean? That, that, that what Jesus did wasn't enough? By no means. May it never be. So what does it mean then? Well, well I, I think what it means, and there, there's a lot of different ways that, that people have answered this, but Sam Storms provides, I think, two very, very helpful answers. First, what he means is that through suffering, the gospel will go out. And that's exactly what Paul was doing. That through suffering, the gospel goes out. And so he was filling up what is lacking. The the second thing that that Dr. Storms provides for us is this idea of being united to Christ. What Jesus is driving at in John 15. If we're united to him, we should expect to suffer like he did. We're completing the suffering that he endured because we're in union with him. We're filling up what is lacking in that way. Finally, when we think about suffering and Jesus, we know that Jesus' suffering was purposeful. 
Of course, there's the suffering unto redemption on the cross where his blood was shed, the wrath of God poured out on him so that it wouldn't be poured out on us. But we also read in the Gospels that Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge and stature with God and man. And then Hebrews 5 puts a little bit finer point on it. It says this, Although he was a son, he, Jesus, learned obedience through what he suffered. Let that sink in. In some way, Jesus, by his suffering, learned obedience. He wasn't being punished for his sin. He had none. But he was being discipled through suffering into obedience to his father. He learned what it was to obey in the face of suffering. He knew what it was to be seeing the will of God before him and to call out, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. And that wasn't a sin to ask. But if not, your will be done. He learned obedience through suffering. John Calvin writes this, it may be at the same time, or it may at the same it may at the same time be truly said that Christ by his death learned fully what it is to obey God, since he was then led in a special manner to deny himself. For renouncing his own will, he so far gave himself up to his father that of his own accord and willingly he underwent that death which he greatly dreaded. Which he greatly dreaded. And he learned obedience through it. When we think about Christ and suffering, just that point of this sermon begins to put some categories together for us, doesn't it? But there's actually still more we can say. Because we can talk about the reality of God's sovereignty, which we'll only do briefly. In Matthew 10, we read, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is teaching us that nothing comes to us apart from the will of God. Nothing. If sparrows can't accidentally, that is apart from God's will, fall from the sky. And we're of so much more value than neither can we. Or we read in Romans 8, beginning in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is in control of your suffering. I can't tell you how. I can't tell you when. But it will, according to his will in his time, work for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. I can't say that much. So already we see so many reasons why our first response to suffering doesn't need to be I'm being disciplined. No. That isn't where we start. But let's talk about suffering as discipline. And to do this, we must have another definitional point in the sermon. 
What do we mean by discipline? Most of us, when we hear the word discipline, think punishment. But biblically speaking, even just in life, discipline and punishment are not necessarily synonyms. We use them that way, unfortunately, all the time. And it messes with our interpretation of passages like Hebrews 12. But discipline and punishment are not necessarily synonyms. Discipline means teaching someone. That's what you're doing. You're teaching them. So so with that in mind, recognizing that discipline and punishment aren't synonyms all the time, let's read Hebrews 12 again. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirit and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Two things that we have to point out there. One, the focus of that passage is training us for holiness, not punishing us. Second, how many times did he refer to us as sons? As sons. He's talking about us as his children, which means someone has already taken his wrath Someone has already shed his blood that we might be adopted. Someone has already reconciled us to God. Who was that? It was Jesus. It was Jesus who also suffered. So suffering as discipline is not the same thing as suffering as punishment. And we need to keep that in mind. Can God chastise via suffering? Yes. But we must understand that we don't start here when facing suffering and go on a deep dive of introspection to see if some hidden sin is in us that God is trying to root out. It's a bad plan. First, why why can I say that God does chastise with suffering? Well, we see it happen in the Bible, even in the New Testament. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira show up. They've come up with this whole scheme of of lying to the church about how much money they were giving. And both of them drop dead. Super hard passage. In 1 Corinthians 11, we we see that that there were people that were were selfishly and, and arrogantly exalting themselves above others in the congregation and coming and taking the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, and that is why many of you are sick and ill and some have died. Hard passage to deal with. God can chastise us with suffering. 
But that's not where we need to start. But we can learn something about how to process this from those two passages. I think two questions are important to ask when we're facing suffering that kind of help us understand, is this punishment? It's not punishment. Jesus was punished, okay? Then am I being chastised? Are you suffering in the midst, as Ananias and Sapphira were, as the people in 1 Corinthians 11 were? Are you suffering in the midst of living in purposeful rebellion to Christ? Then maybe God is trying to teach you something. Does your suffering come with spirit-wrought conviction? Not satanic accusation. Spirit wrought conviction for sin. Then you should listen to that. But even in asking these two questions, we have to be careful. Because we may repent of something and suffering might not stop. This is why this is such a dangerous road to go down. Yes, if you are living in sin, repent. Repent. Now, why do I say this isn't where we start? One, one author that, that I have a lot of respect for, but, but I'm not going to tell you who it is because what I'm about to read I think is horrible. He said, as Christians... When we undergo suffering, we ought to reflect on our own lives. We ought to look deeply into our hearts. And perhaps we may see that God is correcting us and attempting to bring us to the right way of living as one of his children. Well, no. That's not where we start. That's not where we start at all. When you're in the midst of suffering, the right thing to do is not to do some deep dive into your heart at every moment of suffering to see if maybe there's some hidden sin that God is bringing me through this to try to root out of me. Why do we not do that? Well, for one, as Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? These deep, puritanical, introspective dives into the depth of our being? No. If you're suffering, run to Jesus. Run to Him. Because here's the thing. This side of glory... If we do some deep dive, guess what? 100% of the time, without fail, we will find some kind of unfaithfulness. Every single time. Well, we're not perfect this side of glory. So if this is where we're supposed to start with our suffering, we're never going to get past that. Every suffering, every hangnail, every kind of debilitating mental episode, we have to receive as discipline because we can always find something. And it leaves us completely undone. It leaves us completely hopeless. It leaves us a complete wreck. Now, 
we can always convince ourselves that that's what's going on. But the Bible never tells us to do that. And the Bible gives Christians actually a very different first step in suffering. It doesn't say go search your heart and see what God might be doing. No, if God is going to bring conviction, he is going to bring conviction. He's not. Imagine, imagine if one of my kids came and were like, my dad, you know, disciplined me last night. He spanked me last night. Why? I don't know. He just walked in, spanked me, and then said, figure out what that was for. One, I would not be the preacher here anymore. Two, probably, hopefully, multiple of y'all would call DHS on me because I would be being a horrible father. But yet, that's what we think of God doing to us when we face suffering. And there's not clear conviction of the Spirit. Well, he must be trying to teach me something. Let me dive in and see what I can find. Is it this? I had this horrible thought. I did this horrible thing a long time ago. Maybe it's this. And guess where we end up? We end up utterly undone. Not by our sin. Not by God's discipline, but by our own neurosis. That's where it leaves us. Trust me. I've spent too much time there. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. (laughs) For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Or James, we know how he is, right? But this is what he says. If anybody, listen, here's my contention. If anybody was going to say do a deep dive, it it would be Jimmy. But this is what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers. Don't do a deep dive. Count it joy. Why? Because God's shaping you. Peter, or I'm sorry, Paul in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Blessed is the one who suffers. Count it all joy when you face trials. Rejoice in your sufferings. Where does the Bible teach us to start? Recognizing that God is in control and doing something. And where does it never 
as far as I know, tell us to go on a deep dive looking for something that God might be mad about. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. And our suffering as Christians is first and foremost under that glorious truth. Jesus paid it all. And you need to remember that because two people will meet you in your suffering if you let them. Yourself and Satan. And both of them will accuse you. But if you open your eyes, you'll see, just like in the lion's den, there's somebody else there. There's somebody else there with you. And that is Jesus. And he bears on his body the marks of your sin. And he looks at you and he says, I paid for it. I paid for it. So don't think you're now paying again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the comfort that it brings us. Would you comfort us even in our suffering as we rest in Jesus Christ? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.